Welcome to The Landscape, your show about the outdoors and America's public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss of the Center for Western Priorities, and I am thrilled to start this episode by introducing the newest member of our team, Kate Gretzinger. Hi there. Kate will be a familiar voice to some of you, especially listeners in Utah who have heard Kate on the radio there for the last couple of years. So Kate, welcome to the ever-growing club of recovering journalists. (laughs) Thanks, Aaron. Um, I'm so excited to be joining you on the podcast. I actually started listening to it last year, and it's part of why I decided to apply to CWP. Um, I'm also the new social media manager here, so go follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram if you don't already, and send me a message if you have ideas or feedback. Kate, it is it's just wonderful to have you, of course, and all of this is to say that Kate is going to be a regular fixture here on the landscape. Uh, And we are lucky to have Kate and her deep knowledge of public lands issues, especially in southern Utah, where Kate will continue to be based. Um, So thank you again, Kate, for uh, for joining the team here. Yeah, of course. Um, Excited to keep working from beautiful Bluff, Utah. So we're going to talk to law professor Mark Squalachi in a minute about how the Biden administration should fix the oil and gas leasing system. Professor Squalachi, you know, for those of you who haven't heard him before, he has such a a deep knowledge of the law. He has so much experience both in and out of the Interior Department. We haven't had him here on the podcast in, I think, uh, four years or more. So I I was just thrilled for for this chance to talk to him. Absolutely. Um, It's exciting to have somebody who knows what they're talking about um, in this to sort of fill this void, this information void about leasing that's going on right now. So before we get to that, let's talk about other news this week in the conservation world. And I suppose that is, in fact, the void uh, that you just mentioned. Uh, The Interior Department announced this week that it will resume auctions for oil and gas leases on public lands. That announcement came in response to a judge's ruling earlier this summer. That ruling only addressed offshore leases, but Interior went ahead and said they will resume onshore leasing as well. And we will get into more of those implications with Professor Squalachi in a minute. Uh, But the big takeaway for me uh, is that the Interior Department's hands are tied to an extent. Uh, All of this is because a judge, a Trump-appointed judge, I will note, in Louisiana said that President Biden's executive order pausing oil and gas leasing wasn't legal. The Interior Department could have fought that ruling, and they are appealing it, But dragging your heels, digging in, uh, risks uh, the judge then setting an arbitrary timeline or even finding the department in contempt. So by announcing now that they are resuming leasing, the Interior Department at least remains in control over the process. But what is still missing from all of this, that void that Kate just mentioned, is that big report on the oil and gas leasing system that Interior completed several months ago but still hasn't released, It's not clear to me what the holdup is, but it is turning into a problem because fixing this broken system is going to take years of work. The report on leasing is what is supposed to kick off that process, so now Interior is in a situation where climate activists are rightfully calling on the White House to do more, more quickly to stop climate change, and the courts, on the other hand, are telling Secretary Holland that she has to go back to business as usual when it comes to oil leasing. So the question for folks like us in the public lands world becomes, how quickly can Interior move to start these fixes? And we are watching, but it is certainly fair to say that we are getting more than a little impatient at the same time. 
Absolutely. Um, okay, well, I've got some good news, and that is that on Monday, Nevada's governor, Steve Sisolak, signed an executive order aimed at protecting the state's sagebrush ecosystem. The move is a response to declining mule deer and greater sage-grouse populations. So Nevada's Department of Wildlife Conservation and Transportation will head up the initiative by identifying migration corridors and working to protect them from disruption and development. To me, this is really exciting because it demonstrates how 30 by 30 can work on the ground. Um, If you haven't heard about it, 30 by 30 refers to this goal of preserving 30% of the world's lands and waters by 2030 in a way that supports biodiversity. There are plenty of ways to reach the goal, including private conservation, but it's really great to see Nevada stepping up to the plate with this initiative. And Nevada, I'll note, comes on the heels of California, where there is a statewide 30 by 30 goal. Uh, we may see something from uh, from New Mexico here as well in, in the, the next day or so. So we are seeing states take action on their own, and that is thrilling. Uh, and, and I think it's a, a sign that even the broad goal that the White House set earlier this year with the America the Beautiful initiative uh, is having an effect. Uh, and now it really does become uh, up to the Interior Department to bring all of these state initiatives together to create a, a playbook of sorts uh, to show here are the best practices. Here is a toolbox of tools that states can use uh, to make 30 by 30 a reality. We are still waiting for the Interior Department to release its report on how to fix the oil and gas leasing system in America. So in the meantime, we called up a friend of the podcast who has some big thoughts on what needs to be done. Mark Squalacci literally wrote the book on public lands policy in America, several books to be precise. He is a professor and the director of the Natural Resources Law Center at the University of Colorado School of Law. He also served as a special assistant to the Interior Solicitor under Secretary Bruce Babbitt during the Clinton administration. Professor Squalacci, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Aaron, for having me. And our policy director here at the Center for Western Priorities, Jesse Prentice-Dunn, is back with us as well. Jesse, thanks for being here. Thanks as well. Good to be here. Professor Squalacci, let's just start with an overview. And I know this is a topic that could take uh, an entire podcast just by on its own. But uh, from the a quick overview, what is broken about the public lands oil and gas leasing system in America? Yeah, I mean, so I think what's broken is that there's no sort of holistic view of how to manage oil and gas policy on public lands. I mean, I've always thought that there's an opportunity for the Interior Department to sort of show leadership on how we're going to manage oil and gas development going forward. Obviously, there's a lot of private oil and gas development that goes on. Interior can't control all of that. But you could certainly model good behavior. And of course, one of the things that the federal government needs to be thinking about is sort of ratcheting down oil and gas development over time. We all know that we're going to be hitting a point in the next couple of decades where we have to basically um, show that we're not using these resources anymore, at least to the extent that uh, we are now. And so how do we get to the point where we are today and to a point we need to be in the future where we're using far less oil and gas than we do today. So it's a kind of what I've called managing the decline of oil and gas uh, um, resources. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing how this is likely to play out. I mean, we're, we're going to be seeing over the next decade or two a vast expansion of electric vehicles, I think, in the transportation fleet. That is going to really 
curb the demand, particularly on the oil side. Um, there are other things happening with the gas supply that I think could also curb demand there. And so, you know, this is probably happening inevitably. Um, and, and so a responsible manager, it seems to me, kind of plans for this and decides how it's going to go, doesn't let it happen sort of just the way market forces might take it. And, and the reason I think we know this is because of what we saw with the coal industry. You know, many of us were arguing years ago that the government needed to manage the decline of coal in a responsible way. Otherwise, there were going to be all kinds of dislocations with the way that coal communities were impacted by uh, the decline of coal. And nobody really did anything, at least not in any kind of managed or holistic way. And I think we've seen the consequences. So sort of looking at the big picture, I think that's one of the ways that I sort of think about this issue. And I wish someone would step up and Interior might be a good agency to do it. Step up and say, we need to manage this decline in a responsible way. We're not going to shut off oil and gas development overnight, but we're going to we're going to try to get there. We're going to show a glide path that takes us to the sort of the end of the fossil fuel industry. Jesse? You know, Professor Scalacci just mentioned the big picture. And so just to kind of set the table here, you know, right now, more than 26 million acres of public lands are under lease for oil and gas. And to put that into context, that's bigger than 14 of the states in the United States. It's bigger than Kentucky. And right now, uh, the U.S. Geological Survey is telling us that emissions from fossil fuels extracted from public lands account for nearly a quarter of our nation's emissions. So we're not really talking about change you find in the couch or something small. Like This is a, a big national issue that needs to be tackled and tackled quickly. So, Professor Squalachi, you say we need to manage the decline. Is the law as written, does that provide enough tools to manage the decline? Can the secretary, using the discretion she has under the law as written today, can she start managing that decline or is it going to take acts of Congress? Um, So I think she can manage the decline effectively on public lands. And I agree with Jesse that certainly there is quite a bit of development on public lands, but but I do think that um, to some extent, it's going to have to be other agencies, maybe like EPA, that, that force some changes on private lands. But if we just stick with the public lands uh, piece of this, there are quite a few things I think that Interior can do. Number one, they need to uh, raise the royalty rates to a market rate or, or maybe going a little bit above a market rate and maybe ratcheting up these things in ways that discourage development of marginal resources. We shouldn't when we start thinking about trying to get rid of some of our oil and gas development, we should probably start thinking about not allowing development on some of these marginal properties. You know, Jesse mentioned that there are 26 million acres of public land under a lease right now. More than half of those acres, a little over 13 million acres, are not being developed in any way. And it's because of the way the laws work. We're tying up vast quantities of our public lands, and it's not even being developed for oil and gas. Those lands could be made available for other important uses, recreational uses, even renewable energy kinds of uses. And those are effectively lost to us for these other uses because there's a private company that's controlling uh, those resources. So there's a lot more we can do to really sort of think about how to get away from fossil fuels, and in this case, particularly oil and gas. Kate? I'm wondering if you could just explain what you mean when you say manage the decline. Um, Right. What does that mean? What does it look like? 
Yeah, so managing the decline in my mind is recognizing that over time, we essentially need to um, avoid developing using fossil fuel resources. So I want us to be on a sort of a, a regularized sort of definite glide path where basically, you know, uh, um, a graph that shows a declining amount of development and use of oil and gas, it's not going to be a perfect straight line, right? There's going to be some ups and downs, but the trend should be down. We should be developing less. There are certain policies that we could enact where we could actually maybe even increase revenues as we're having declining kinds of resources. But ultimately, we need to get to the point where we're not developing or using oil and gas resources anymore. That I don't know exactly what the timeline for that is, but we need to be thinking about that timeline and we need to be pushing ourselves in that direction so that, um, so that over time, uh, year after year after year, we're seeing less oil and gas development and the trend lines are clear. And ultimately we end up where we're not producing oil and gas any longer in this country and frankly, throughout the world. So I uh, will get back to what that pol- what those policies look like at the national level in terms of all oil and gas development, public lands or otherwise, but focusing just on the Interior Department and that secretarial discretion that Secretary Holland has under the law. Explain to me the, the importance of doing those making those changes via secretarial orders or instructional memoranda, which can happen very quickly, versus the formal rulemaking process, which takes much longer, uh, but is potentially, I guess, stickier, depending on, uh, on what happens with future administrations. Right, right. So um, some of it will have to be done through rulemaking. We currently have rules that effectively um, basically set the royalty rates at 12.5% for oil and gas development. You can reduce that uh, for certain exigent circumstances and interior too often, I think does reduce those royalty rates. I'm arguing for increasing the royalty rates. I would like to see a standard royalty rate of maybe something around 20%. I think 20% royalties would, um, would cause companies to think a little harder about whether they want to develop a particular resource. And at the same time, it would generate greater revenues for the federal government Uh, The other things that they should probably do by rulemaking, I would like to see them raise rental rates. This is actually kind of a big deal. Um, Rental rates right now are either $1.50 or $2 an acre, depending on the uh, length of time that you've held the lease. It's pretty nominal in terms of allowing a company to hold uh, their leases. It's one of the reasons I think we have 13 million acres of leased land that is not being developed because they're basically holding it for speculative purposes. And as I've already said, that's tying up a lot of land. I'd like to see them raise that rental rate, the per acre rental rate, to something like $10 with an escalation clause. So it starts maybe at $10 for the first few years. If you develop the lease, then um, you know the way that rentals work is you don't pay the rentals once you're paying royalties. So the rentals only apply when you're not developing the lease. So I want to discourage people from holding leases for speculative purposes. Start off high and let it escalate up over time so that the longer people hold the lease, the more money they have to pay to keep it. And that disincentivizes, frankly, buying the lease in the first place, but then holding it for a long term if you don't really plan to develop it. And it also, at the same time, as I said, raises pretty significant revenues for the state and the federal governments that are affected by it. So I'd like to see those kinds of things. 
There is one really good thing that could be done without rulemaking, and that is um, ratcheting up what we're doing in terms of conditions on both leases, and those are often called stipulations, and also conditions that we impose on permits. So in order to develop an oil and gas uh, property on public lands, you have to get a lease from the federal government, and the lease can include conditions or stipulations that limit the way that development occurs. And then you still have to get a permit to drill and uh, you file what's called an application for a permit to drill or an APD. And um, you can include additional conditions on that APD. There's been a lot of controversy about the BLM, for example, uh, trying to require capture of methane from oil and gas development. I think that could be done as a condition on an APD or maybe on a lease. Uh, the Interior Department could say, look, um, you can have the lease, but if you're going to develop the oil and gas, here's what we need you to do to capture that methane. Uh, and if you don't capture it, you're going to have to pay uh, the royalties on the methane that you've allowed to be released. That was a rule that Interior had developed. It's been in litigation ever since it was developed during the Obama administration. But there's really no legal reason why those kinds of things could not be imposed on individual leases or individual permits. And that's just one example. There are a lot of other environmental restrictions that could be imposed on both uh, leases and on, on drilling permits. And I'd like to see more aggressive use of these things. You know, not to, and this is not about really penalizing companies so much, but it is about maximizing revenues for the state and federal government. And it is about making sure that we're on this glide path downward to try to get to the point where we're not developing as much oil and gas. Jesse? I, I think that is spot on. And I really think the name of the game going forward is how we're going to use this permitting process to really uh, look out for the public good. I, I think in terms of climate and in terms of economics, you know, Professor Scalacci mentioned raising royalty rates, um, possibly to 20%, which is a level similar to Colorado and New Mexico, what they charge on their lands. You know, we did an analysis last year that found uh, if the national rate had been raised to that, uh, taxpayers would have gotten an additional six and a half billion dollars, which is not a, not a small figure over the previous five years of, of that. Um, so at, we're, we're really talking about sub, something substantive here. And I think the, the overall narrative is if these are resources that are owned by the American people, we should not only be seeing a fair return for them, but we should be planning for our future and what development of them means for that. Uh, but but just to go back, I, I think the, the permitting process and all of these steps, uh, you really laid out a really uh, compelling roadmap of how we can reform this system. Yeah. So I, I have a question. Um, one thing that we hear from the oil and gas companies often is that if you make it expensive to drill on federal lands, they're just going to go to private lands. So does this need to happen in conjunction in concert with like a federal national policy like you mentioned or some action through the EPA? Um or is ratcheting down development on federal lands enough in and of itself? Is it okay if it goes to private? I mean, it's a really fair point. Um, certainly the oil and gas industry uses those kinds of arguments to try to prevent the federal government from imposing new conditions or, or new restrictions or new fees, I guess, on the way development occurs. But I'm not very sympathetic at all to those kinds of arguments. Maybe there would be less development on federal lands. As far as I'm concerned, that would be a good thing. 
Um, and again, it would model behavior in ways I think that would be positive. I would note, for example, on Texas state lands, they charge 25% royalties. So, you know, the idea that uh, the federal government might charge 20% would basically be less than what the state of Texas charges for oil and gas leases on their land. So we don't know really whether a lot of this would move to um, uh, private land. Some of it might. I do think that there are ways for the EPA to weigh in and, and demand uh, methane capture on oil and gas leases. There should be a lot more of that. Frankly, there are huge problems, I think, with the lack of planning for oil and gas development. Very difficult for the federal government to demand that North Dakota and, and Texas uh, do better planning for how oil and gas is developed. I'd really like to see better planning. I mean, if you go down to the Permian Basin, for example, you'll see pump jacks every couple hundred feet in every direction for miles and miles. Um, it's really sort of distressing. It's become a total sacrifice area to the oil and gas industry. And I think it's partly, they're all doing horizontal drilling. And so you could actually do with better planning, you could limit the number of well pads uh, and you'd get all kinds of environmental efficiencies if you limited the number of well pads down there because you could you'd have a justification for um, bringing in uh, pipelines uh, and to move water and other kinds of materials in and out of those sites because the cost would be effective. The, the electrical power generation would be a lot more efficient. You're capturing the methane. Maybe you could even put a small natural gas generator on site to, to get the electricity that you need. You're, you'd be limiting the number of roads. You know, right now, roads and power lines go out to every one of those little sites. And and so just the total lack of planning is is kind of shocking, I think, in some ways. And, um, and you know, that might actually allow for uh, more development, but it would be more sensible development. It would be smart development. And, and it would be more environmentally sensitive development because you'd be managing and controlling your water better. I think you'd be managing and controlling your air pollution and your methane releases much better. There'd be a lot better justification for it. But I certainly think that EPA needs to step in here and do the best it can. You know, there are rules for methane capture on new wells. I think there's a big problem with existing wells. Um, EPA, I think, is inclined to want to develop regulations for existing wells, and that would be huge uh, because there is a lot of uh, loss of methane in those existing wells, and, and that would help. I don't think, certainly you can't do as much on private lands as we can do on public lands, but, but again, uh, if we lose some development on federal land, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. I think that's the trend that we need to go in. And, um, and I'd like to think that if we model good behavior on our public lands, uh, some of the companies will adopt those practices on the private lands as well. Question about water, since we are seeing the first ever call on water uh, in mm. the Colorado River Basin this year, fracking, of course, does use quite a bit of water in that process. How does the drought and just the ongoing effects of climate change potentially play into public lands policy and the rules that we may see going forward around drilling, both private and public lands? An interesting question. Uh, Jesse, I don't know if what your experience is with water. I'm happy to defer to you, but I can say a few things about it. By all means, please go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so you know, on the one hand, there is a lot of water that's used, certainly once you start talking about thousands of wells. And so cumulatively, the water is substantial. I think the value of the oil and gas tends to justify the expense, and it could be a significant expense to, to sort of get the rights to those water. Remember, it's kind of a one-time use. 
So they don't have to acquire permanent water rights. And so uh, in most cases, these companies can acquire the one-time water rights. It's less expensive, of course, than acquiring that permanent water right. And um, and I, I don't think that that is going to be much of a discouragement to oil and gas development, whether on public lands or on private lands. I do think that it could have consequences, though, for other water kinds of needs or uses. Uh, you know, we are really in a severe crisis, particularly in the Colorado River Basin and in the Rio Grande Basin as well. Um, Rio Grande, of course, would be affected by um, by the Permian Basin development, both in New Mexico and uh, and in Texas. And and you know, I guess with respect to that, I would say that there's a lot of wasted water, to my mind, in both states, but particularly I think in New Mexico, they don't manage their water as well as I think they should be managing it. And so, in that sense, there might be water that that the companies would be able to come up with to do their fracking and um, and, you know, as I said, they are somewhat price insensitive, at least compared to the farmers. But, uh, you know, if you go down to some of those pecan farms down in southern New Mexico, they're using what farmers refer to as maybe five or six feet of water. So if you can just kind of visualize dumping that much water in and the trees that is areas, per acre that that far. Yeah, that it's yeah. a it's just an enormous amount of water. And to my mind, it's totally unnecessary to grow pecans. And yet it's the cheapest sort of way that you can sort of apply water to the land. So, so when we're thinking about water, I don't know that that's going to be a significant constraint on oil and gas development, but certainly um, maybe it would even force some of these states to start thinking about better water practices, uh, particularly on the agricultural side. That would be a positive thing, I would think. Jesse? And yeah, speaking of, of better practices at the state level, um, I believe New Mexico is I'm starting to look at that with the the state land commissioner, I, I believe, instituting a practice of uh, recycling water for fracking on state lands. I mean, obviously yeah. a limited jurisdiction, but um, right. I think states in the policy space are trying to innovate here uh, and look ahead. It's a good point, Jesse. And, and, you know, recycling becomes a lot easier if you pull those wells on a single pad as well. You know, so if you, you can build the infrastructure basically to do that recycling um, it, it's much more cost effective if you've got 20 or 30 wells on your on a single pad. And so while that single pad might be a, a bigger uh, impact than, than, of course, um, multiple pads, my individual pads might be, um, it would still be worthwhile, I think, in terms of environmental impacts overall. You mentioned the Obama era methane capture rule that's been in litigation, bouncing back and forth for four years. How long does it take to write a rule in a way that sticks and stands up to to legal challenges? I mean, is, is the Biden administration already, you know, potentially running out of time? Well, that's a really interesting question. I've worked for the federal government uh, two different times in my career, both times at the Interior Department in the legal office, in the solicitor's office. And you know, when I was there early on, many years ago now, I won't uh, tell you when, I will, I'll be dating myself, but but early on, we were pretty efficient about developing rules. And I think we were efficient without cutting out the public uh, comment process. I think government can do a better job with this. There's a lot of talk about streamlining decision-making and, and particularly with environmental impact statements and that kind of thing. And I actually don't object to the idea of streamlining. I think it's important that we encourage a government to act efficiently. What I object to is cutting corners. So I don't 
I think we should do environmental impact statements and we should do rulemakings in a more efficient way. We ought to put ourselves on a timeline and we ought to do our best to stick to that timeline. It ought to be generous, at least in terms of making sure we've engaged the public in an appropriate way, in a meaningful way. But I think we should try to keep that timeline cabined without cutting corners in terms of doing the analysis that needs to be done to make sure that we're making good decisions about these things. I actually think we'd get better decisions if we were more efficient in making the decisions in a timely way, because the same people would be working on it. They'd be working on it more consistently rather than trying to do 30 things at the same time and maybe getting back to a particular project uh, every once in a while. Um, you forget what you were working on if you haven't worked on something for a couple of weeks and and there's time loss. People leave and you have to bring somebody else in to, to do it. So I really think the government ought to be thinking about efficiency. The, the way the rulemaking process works, you know, you only really have to give 30 days for public comment. I'd be more generous than that. I'd give 90 days probably for public comment. You have to respond to public comment, right? So I think that can take some time. But you can do all of those kinds of things much more efficiently. And the government needs to do that. They need to figure out how to act efficiently and um, how to streamline their decision-making processes without cutting corners on in terms of their assessments and their analyses and, and all the things that need to be done. Not necessarily easy, but I think at the end of the day, um, much more satisfying, not just for the public, but for the agency people working on these things. They can kind of see a timeline and they can kind of stick with the timeline and hopefully uh, see the progress that they've made in getting out rules on whatever uh, they might want to get rules out on, uh, methane capture or, or whatever it might be. Okay. Sure. So I think maybe this is what Aaron was getting at, but do you have a sense of why the Biden administration hasn't put out its report on the reforms that need to occur? No, I mean, you know, they, uh, you guys probably followed this. They had a hearing um, uh, that uh, quite a while ago now. I testified at that hearing um, and I submitted comments. I think I sent them to you, Aaron. Yep. Um, and so there was kind of a notice and comment process and, and even this public hearing. It seemed like they could probably move more efficiently on some of this stuff. Certainly they would have to go through proposed rules first. Um, I, I really don't know. I mean, I'm not on the inside, obviously, and I'm very cautious about trying to get inside information from people who are in that responsible position. I mean, I know them reasonably well. I could probably call some of them, but I'm reluctant to sort of interject myself other than through the official formal kinds of processes that are available to me. If somebody calls me, I'm certainly willing to talk to them. And I, I have had occasion to talk to some people who are involved in the administration and you know talked about some things that I think could be done. I, I wish they would have moved by now on some of this. I don't know what's holding it up. Um, I don't know what their timeline is or whether they even have a timeline for when they're going to be acting on some of this stuff. And, and frankly, I know that a lot of this is controversial um, if you propose raising the uh, the rental rates on oil and gas leases to $10 an acre, as I've suggested, and then escalating up from there, the oil and gas industry is probably not going to be happy about that. In fact, they might be very unhappy. But again, I would point out to them, you guys have 13 million acres under lease right now that you're not using and developing, and that is tying up our public lands in ways that are totally inappropriate in terms of the needs that we have for our public lands and what we ought to be doing. And frankly, if they're not going to develop them, maybe oil and gas is a good use of those lands, but let's release them. Let's not hold them up. I mean, there, there's another problem 
sort of related to this, which is just the fact that the federal government has suspended a lot of leases. Um, when you suspend a lease and you can suspend them for basically in the interest of conservation is what the statute says. And it was originally, I think, intended to, to be about the, the conservation of the resource. The courts have suggested that environmental conservation is a good enough justification as well. But the government, the Interior Department suspends thousands of leases um, without giving any explanation. And there are something like over 600 leases right now that are under suspension. When you're under suspension, you pay nothing. You pay no rentals, you pay no royalties to the federal government. And they, they have not given any reasons for these suspensions. There's no documentation about why they suspended them. Over 600 of these have been suspended for over 30 years. A lease is not even supposed to last more than 10 years if you're not producing. So what is going on with all these leases that have been suspended? And why isn't the government taking action to basically remove those leases from the public lands? Uh, that's probably what should be done in most of these cases. But we don't know. I mean, because they get, have not given reasons for those suspensions, um, we have no idea why they suspended them. Well, maybe there are some legitimate suspensions. But it's hard for me to believe that you can suspend, you should suspend leases for 30 years or more. That seems absurd to me. And that really needs to be changed. And I'd like to see Interior move on that and move on it quickly. So we're recording this Tuesday afternoon, late in the afternoon, and there was just a development in the court case out of Louisiana over the administration's leasing pause. Uh, Jesse, I'll, I'll toss it over to you and let you break down what just happened. Sure. Well, count me among the impatient for the Interior Department to release its report on how to reform it. Um, but while we're waiting, um, kind of in a one step forward, two steps back scenario, uh, the Department of Justice filed uh, with a court in Louisiana saying that they will restart the leasing process both offshore and onshore uh, beginning next Tuesday, August 31st. Um, and so this is going to take the, the form of announcing a lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico and then also beginning the scoping process for uh, BLM lands, um, BLM minerals in the West. Uh, admittedly, a lease sale wouldn't take place until early 2022, but as we're talking about, um, you know, reforming the process, uh, managing a, a ramp down, uh, this is kind of a step in the opposite direction, even if there may just be some legal wrangling. Hmm. So I guess then my question to you, Professor Squalacci, is given the, looks like at least some pressure coming from from the, the judges here, there in the Fifth Circuit in Louisiana, uh, what would your advice be to Secretary Holland? Uh, are, are there legal authorities that she should be leading, leaning into that we have not seen yet in their arguments? Uh, what else should they be looking at uh, in moving forward with this process where it looks like we are going to have onshore lease sales uh, early next year? Yeah, um, so I've, I've always opposed the moratorium that in the Biden administration put into place, um, be, partly because at least on, on terrestrial lands, the law is pretty clear that the government has to hold quarterly lease sales in every state um, where there are, are oil and gas lands available. And that sort of question about availability is dependent upon the land use plans that the government agencies prepare. And most of those plans make lots of lands available for 
oil and gas development. So I think it's pretty hard to argue, at least with respect to public lands, that you can't, you shouldn't hold any lease sales. Um, it, it's a little bit fuzzier, I think, with respect to offshore leases, and I think there might be more discretion there. But the point here is that just because you may have to have a lease sale doesn't you, mean you have to sell lots of tracks. Um, you can put up just a modest number of tracks. You can put those tracks up only in areas where there's already significant development and where you would minimize um, the sort of environmental impact. And you can move more aggressively in these other areas where you're you know, imposing uh, uh, more stringent conditions on the way that development occurs. You're trying to get rid of the stale leases, the thousands and thousands of stale leases on our public lands that are not being developed and, and you know, work aggressively to remove those. The oil and gas industry kind of had a field day with this moratorium. And I think there was some level of dishonesty about the impacts on, on revenues because really they're, they're, for many months, there was actually not a lot of interest in new oil and gas leasing on public lands because of COVID. And, you know, with COVID, nobody was driving anymore. And so demand went went down dramatically. Of course, that's evolved and changed now. It's, it's somewhat back to where it was pre-COVID. But, you know, talking about having lease sales during COVID was kind of silly. Nobody was interested in in purchasing leases. We saw, for example, what happened in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, nobody wanted those leases. Alaska had to buy them on their own, and it's not clear what's going to happen with those leases. I mean, it's it's pretty ironic that Alaska is buying leases up there because Alaska gets half the money back, you know, through the royalties and revenue program. So they're going to basically be discount. themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of a strange uh, situation. So I don't... Um, I don't think it was a good move to have imposed that moratorium because it just got them caught up in this litigation, which was kind of unnecessary. And I think it did maybe um, make it more difficult for them to move on some of these reforms we're talking about. Again, I'm not advocating a, a major robust kind of leasing program, but a very modest leasing program that is very limited, but enough to sort of satisfy the courts that, that they're still doing leasing as required by the law. And I don't think, frankly, compared to the stuff they could probably prevent through better uh, stipulations and conditions on leases and permits, I think that would be far better from an environmental perspective than worrying about a few more leases that might be, um, you know, sold on public lands. All right. We've got time for probably one last question. Jesse, what you got? Well, I, I was just going to agree with Professor Squalacci in terms of a lot of this comes down to the nuts and bolts of public land management. Uh, resource management plans and and how we um, and how we uh, it, this is like city zoning. What do we do with our neighborhoods? Where is development allowed? What's prioritized? And I think the the laws that oil and gas development are based on are a century old, and they were when the West was being developed. And I, I think after a century, it's time to realize that we have a lot of different uses that are uh, have great. Um, impacts for our economies, our communities, and that we should really be looking as, as these public land managers face the really difficult task of uh, how to plan for 10 or 20 years for their, their lands and their communities. We should be prioritizing things like conservation and renewables and recreation and carbon sequestration. There are a lot of different uses that are very valuable for these public lands. And so kind of to have a um, an all or nothing approach with oil and gas, I think, misses the, the larger point for the future. All right, Kate actually gets the last word. Yeah, that actually segues right into what I was going to ask. Um, so circling back 
to something that um, Professor Squalachi mentioned at the beginning or sort of um, sort of referenced obliquely. <laughs> you you talked about the coal communities and the impacts they're experiencing. And I'm curious if you could talk about what some of these reforms that ratchet down drilling on public lands, how that could be- actually end up benefiting the fossil fuel communities that are sort of in the middle of all of this. Yeah. So it's a really interesting point. And, um, you know, there with the coal industry, sort of just to um, clarify some of the issues there, what we have seen are massive bankruptcies I think Peabody is about to undergo their third bankruptcy. And what they typically do through these bankruptcies is they they basically uh, hurt the workers in significant ways. They get rid of benefits, all kinds of benefits that workers normally would be getting in terms of health care and retirement and other kinds of things, because the bankruptcy judges are trying to prop up these coal companies in ways that they can sort of keep going. And, and Peabody's done this twice already. They're trying to do it a third time. Um, and they just keep shaving off liabilities. Uh, I think it's been hundreds of millions of dollars of liabilities that they're basically dumping um, on their creditors, and including their workers in many cases. And, and that scenario could easily play out with the oil and gas industry. Uh, it's a little bit dangerous, I think, to compare them too carefully, too closely. I mean, uh, coal was a much more concentrated kind of industry. There are a lot more players in the oil and gas industry, and so it's a little more complicated business model. But we've already seen a lot of bankruptcies in the oil and gas industry. And as um, demand goes down over time for oil and gas because of electrification in particular, I think we're going to see a lot more bankruptcies in that area. And so how do we manage that in a way? How do we avoid or minimize the number of bankruptcies that we're having? And how do we manage it in a way that doesn't hurt those workers in those communities that are dependent on those on those workers? We could have done a lot more. I think there's a lot of government money now that's going to become available under the um, under the infrastructure bill that that is about to be passed or hopefully will be passed. So there's money for transition in these communities, but that money should have been available years ago. Um, to help these communities transition. And so that's what I'm thinking about. How can we anticipate what's going to be happening to the oil and gas industry in a way that we can work with these communities now to transition them away from fossil fuels? It's going to take time, and some of the communities won't want the help because they're going to think that oil and gas is going to go on forever, but it's not. And I think more and more people are realizing that. We're seeing that in the coal communities, by the way. I think the coal communities now understand that coal's not coming back. I mean, Trump did everything he could to try to bring coal back and it didn't work. And I think they recognize that now the opportunities are there for uh, the transition. One of the interesting things about the transition has to do with reclamation, right? So so now um, all kinds of problems with coal reclamation, it wasn't supposed to happen. It violates the law. But Congress is probably going to step up and put a lot of money into reclamation. And the same workers who were working on in, in the coal mines are, are able to work on the reclamation work. That's part of what they've done. And so it's a nice way to transition. And we can do the same thing with the oil and gas industry because there are millions of oil and gas wells that have been abandoned and they need to be reclaimed. I'm kind of ticked off at the idea that we're going to put public money into reclaiming um, you know, oil and gas wells, we should be taxing the oil and gas industry to pay for a lot of this stuff. I've made that pitch to the interior folks, and I doubt that they're going to take my uh, advice or that Congress will take my advice on that. But regardless, 
let's make the money available. Let's let's sort of stop the methane leakage. I mean, the methane leakage itself is an enormous environmental problem from these abandoned wells. That ought to be our first order of business, getting those wells plugged and making sure we're not losing that methane. And it would put a lot of these workers to work and, and it would help the transition. Again, planning, thinking about, okay, how do we move this transition along in a responsible way, keep workers working to the extent that we can and gradually move them out of that industry as much as we can. Sorry, that was a little long-winded, but I hope that's okay. Always nice to end uh, with a way looking forward. So Professor Mark Squalacci, thank you so much for coming back to the landscape. Delighted to be here. That's it for this episode of The Landscape. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review wherever you're listening to it. You can also send your ideas for future episodes to podcast at westernpriorities.org. And a reminder that if you missed our last two episodes with public lands photographer Bob Wick, you can find videos of both of those on YouTube and Facebook, also in the show notes right here, so you can see Bob's pictures as he talks about them. And thanks again to Jesse Prentice-Dunn and Professor Mark Squalacci for joining us. From the whole team at Center for Western Priorities, I'm Kate Gretzinger. I'm Aaron Weiss, and thank you for listening. <laughs>